Welcome women. Here we talk about sovereign and instinctual womanhood and motherhood, the call to women's work, and so much more. I'm Bethany Wild, an author, mother, and mentor for women's wellness practitioners who want to deepen their knowledge of holistic womb and pelvic care. And I'm so glad that you're here. Hello, women. Today, I am going to be sharing kind of the backstory of my book, Pelvic Awakening, how I created it. I'm going to be sharing one of the chapters from the book, and I just want to talk a little bit more about my book because it's been about, let's see, almost two years since I put it out, and it continues to be something that you know, I just get random messages and emails all the time from women thanking me for writing that book. And so it really is one of the most fulfilling things I've ever created and put out there. So I want to share more in this episode about my process of creating that book, because I also get women who ask me, you know, um, who tell me that they have some ideas, but they feel like creating a book is so overwhelming. And so I also like to, you know, talk to those women about my process and, you know, (laughs) it was, it was quite a process, but it was also in a sense quite easy and such a deeply fulfilling, uh, project to put out that, yeah, I hope this episode might inspire any woman who has an idea or has all of these pieces of writings and wants to put it together into something and just needs a little bit of a roadmap on how to get there. Um, all right, but before I get into that, I want to talk about my upcoming online womb massage workshop. So I have hosted this in person in pretty small, intimate gatherings in my office for women over the, over the last few years. Um, but I move a lot and (laughs) it, I pretty much have more of a global community who follows my work and who connects with me. So I'm excited to shift this to an online workshop to be able to reach all of the women who can't see me in person, but who I deeply know would benefit from a practice like this for womb health. So this is the womb massage practice that I have worked with women on for many years now. I have woven together different techniques from um, different trainings I've been to. I have added in my own techniques, um, just adapted a lot. So what I'm going to be offering is unique to me and it's going to be a really fun time. Um, So I'm going to talk about physical energetic anatomy of the pelvis. We're going to have a guided womb meditation and connection time and then I'm going to guide you through my womb massage practice and I have done this before with women in private sessions so I'm confident that it's uh, able to be translated well. 
Um, and then I'm going to share with you how to make your own slow infused whole plant medicine herbal body oil. And then I'm going to give you some recipes to suit your situation. If you have some kind of imbalance or you are just wanting something more all purpose. So it's going to be really fun and I'm going to include the link in the show notes and it's going to be October 9th. So next month, 10 a.m. Central time. So I would love it if you joined us. It's going to be really fun. I made it affordable and yeah, definitely join us. Okay, so now I want to back up a bit and talk about my process of creating this book and where it came from. So I've always been a writer. I've always written poetry and um, just written in all kinds of ways and just collected so many different pieces throughout the years, both... um, written by hand, things on my computer that I write. So I had so many different writings over the years, just all over the place. And, oh, let's see. I think it was about maybe a year before I became pregnant with my daughter. And I had this idea to put it all together. It was kind of... Um, It's hard to remember the exact details now, but I know that I had this vision of a book that really hadn't been created yet, and I still don't think it's exactly been created um, aside from my own book, but yeah, I wanted to have a book that would really weave together the way I see the importance of womb and pelvic health for a woman, um, as the center of her power, the source of her vitality and life force, and the center of her groundedness in her body. So I, it took me a while to understand and have all the themes come together of what would be in the book. And that was really a big process over the next year or two where I started to piece together my writings, made kind of a visual map of the different chapters, and then added in from there. So I'm a pretty visual person. I like to have a really clear vision that I could see right in front of me of the overview of everything. And only then can I fit things in. So that's kind of the way I work. I wanted to have kind of a summary of the whole book, basically, as much as I could without having written it exactly yet. And then all the chapters and then all the subchapters and then go from there. So that's kind of how I worked. And I had all of these pieces of writings and then I really the process was editing, adding and filling in things from there. Um, So I knew that I wanted to create a book that was all about pelvic health and it didn't come from purely this, you know, anatomical clinical aspect. I have always been someone who understood the energetic side, the spiritual side. 
I wanted to weave in my studies of um, Taoist practices and female cultivation practices, but I didn't want to only come at it from that point either, from the purely spiritual and energetic side. I wanted, you know, I've always been interested in anatomy and the body, and I wanted to find a way to bring all of these pieces together. And then I also wanted to add in the practical, supportive tools and modalities that I've worked with women on and just put it all together into this book that can be... um, supportive to the woman who is just entering into this world and who wants to understand this and then also will reach a woman who is a little bit further along in this path and still wants these gems of wisdom so I feel like in that mission I I did a pretty good job of trying to reach both this this woman who's entering this world and then this woman who is, you know, a little bit further along. Um, so that was my intention there. So I spent, um, I spent a lot of time before, I mean, I wasn't super serious about it before I got pregnant. I was really just casually doing it, um, putting things together And then when I got pregnant, there was a bit of a sense of a timeline. I didn't know how my life would change after I had my child, but I knew it would. And I knew I had to get all my projects together because it was, I just knew it was going to be harder and and it was so much harder than I realized. But yeah, so I spent a lot of my pregnancy getting a lot more serious about putting the book together and trying to figure out how to complete it. Um, so I did that. I, and then another thing during the pregnancy, I was in contemplation about whether I wanted to pursue traditional publishing or whether I just wanted to go ahead and publish it myself. And I felt like if I published it myself, it wouldn't be taken as seriously. I thought that um, it it wouldn't be as good, you know, it wouldn't have that professional editor. And I was worried about my big project being self-published and just not reaching the people that I wanted it to reach. And ultimately, whether it's from my own sense of impatience or whether I wanted to just control it all or probably both, I decided to go ahead um, and self-publish it. And I had had a friend who did that with her, her own spiritual books and had a lot of great things to say about it and, you know, talked about how important it was for her to have that control over her manuscript and her writing and the energy behind it. And that really resonated with me because I am also that way. That's why I've always worked for myself. I, I don't want someone else to, um, you know, have a say with what the book would look like and how it would go, even if they might actually make it better. Um, so that was what I decided for, for this 
book. It might be different in the future, but I really wanted to have full ownership, full control of the book. So I spent a lot of time um, understanding and learning how to do that. And I was lucky because Amazon um, has a pretty easy path to self-publishing, but I did have to read through a ton of manuals and um, it was a lot more work to self-publish. I will say that. And I think that was, that's an obvious thing to say that there is just so much more work on the back end. And and I'll talk about that um, in a little bit. So yeah, when I was pregnant, I spent much of the time with my work with trying to finish this book project. So I did a lot of writing. I did a ton of editing. I would say that more than anything, the time was spent on editing. I, that was just the hugest process. So, you know, I couldn't finish it all before my daughter came, but I pretty much wrote the entire book except for the motherhood chapter. I couldn't even conceive of writing that before I had her. And then once I had her, I had to write that. So I wrote that um, probably when she was just a couple of months old. And so, you know, I reflect on that now, two years later, and I'm a really different person than when I wrote this book. And it's kind of interesting. I don't have any sort of, you know, cringing or, you know, I still love the book, but I have grown up a lot. And um, some of my ideas have changed and um, I have gotten maybe one or two reflections on the book that it is, um, yeah, it is straddling this world between 101 and the more advanced stuff and really only touching on that. And you know, I I do see that, and I and I feel pretty good about that actually. Um, I don't think at the time I was really committed and ready to writing a more advanced, higher level book, and I'm appreciative of how it has reached a lot of women who, you know, didn't know about this stuff. So I I love it, but I also have grown, and um, I would probably have a lot more to say about motherhood in that, in that chapter. But, um, yeah, it really speaks to where I was at that time of my life and moving into, um, still very much a maiden and moving into mother and I'm still deepening in that way. So, okay. So before, oh, let's see. When I had my daughter, I, of course, was just incredibly overwhelmed, to say the least. I, um, everything took a backseat, all of my work projects. So I really didn't take a look at my book again until maybe she was about three months old. And then that was a time where I started to get into the process of editing. And people think I'm a little crazy when I say this, but, um, I was so excited about this book. Um, I really have to say that I was so excited every time I read it, 
I was like, this is such an important thing to get out there and I need to get it out before someone else puts something else like this out because I remember reading this um, or hearing this quote from Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote Eat, Pray, Love and she was talking about how book ideas are like little spirits and um, she said it more eloquently than me um, but... uh, So the spirits come to people as ideas and you have to jump on it and say yes to that little spirit idea. And if you wait too long, they'll go to someone else. And she told this story of this amazing book idea that came to her, but she was, I think, working on a different project and, um, or maybe she had written a lot of the book, but didn't release it yet. And she waited too long. And literally the exact same idea in detail um, was written by this other amazing author. And then she had kind of realized what happened and put it aside. And um, I think she realized that that woman wrote it much better than she did. But anyway, just to say that 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 really spoke to me. I've had that so many times with a lot of my ideas where it's just part of the collective consciousness. And I knew that I had already seen over the last five, 10 years, just where I began, where there just wasn't any information and trainings or workshops or a way to learn about pelvic health and not a lot of practitioners um, really offering that in a holistic way and how now there's just so many women offering it in that way and um, and teaching it, which is so amazing. Um, but anyway, so I felt this kind of a little bit of internal pressure to really get this project out because it was already written. It just needed editing. And I remember that being such a, I don't want to say painstaking. It was a very detailed process. It, I must've read and reread my book over a hundred times. I mean, it was just, I reread it and I reread it and I reread it. And every time I did, I found a mistake and I had to re, I had to just redo it. And I had my husband read it and he gave me some feedback where, um, I knew I had to rewrite a big portion of it that it just wasn't right yet. And it actually made it so much better. So I could really see how, you know, if I had more, more eyes on it, more editors that it, it would have been a different book and probably a better book, but that's not exactly what happened. I didn't have the resources at the time for that, but, um, but yeah, so I, I, w- I was so, I had so much creative energy flowing in me, whether it was from the birth or just the excitement about this book, that I woke up every morning for months at 3 a.m. before my daughter woke up, and I just, I got, I got my coffee, and I just read and edited and rewrote and got fired up 
for like three hours until she woke up. And this was every morning and it was so exhausting. Um, but I honestly loved it. I was so fueled by this creative project and all of this energy flowing through me. And I know it definitely taxed my body to be doing that and to be drinking coffee first thing in the morning. That's, that's so not good. But, um, yeah, I don't regret it for a second because I loved it. And sometimes, uh, (laughs) that's just what you do. So that's what I did. Crazily enough, I did that for many months until, until I couldn't even look at the book anymore. Um, I had read it so many times and then I took a couple of weeks break so I could have some fresh eyes on it and, um, oh my God. And then, then the process of literally just creating the, the word document file with all the correct formatting to send it in to Amazon was the most frustrating thing I've ever done. There were so many details, so many things went wrong and weren't working like how I wanted it to. And so that was the book project. And then there was the the Kindle file, which was a whole different file that I had to do with formatting. And that was just, I just wish I could have farmed that one out because that was so hard um, for me personally. So that's where I say the the writing process, even the editing process to some extent was really joyful and fun, but the final editing process where I read the book a million times and, and I just wondered if I could ever read the book in full without finding a mistake because I never did. Um, I just, at, at some point I just decided that it was good enough and it was never going to be perfect And I just had to put it out there. And so that's kind of the point where I got to. I was really worried about just putting it out there when it wasn't as perfect as I wanted it to be because I have a very detail-oriented nature and I can get super obsessive about things. Um, I'm a Virgo rising. So I, I have that part of myself that really strives for greatness and um, puts a lot of pressure on myself. And then it's almost like I get to that point and then I'm just like, well, fuck it. It's as good as it's going to get. I just cannot obsess about this anymore. So I put it out and, um, I felt a lot of relief and I put it to the side and, you know, I did a little bit of marketing with it. Um, not as much as I, probably should have done because I was still very much in my early mothering. Um, I think my daughter was maybe six months old and yeah. And now it's been out for a year and a half. I haven't edited it at all since it's come out. Um, but I've actually, I was surprised to receive so many beautiful messages from women who were just really grateful that I put this work out and shared with me how much the book has touched them and impacted them. And um, I honestly can say there is just, there just isn't anything more fulfilling than that. 
in in terms of of work like it was everything I could have dreamed of it's like my life's work is in this book format and um I'm just I'm just grateful that I put in all of that work and um yeah have this beautiful thing to show for it um oh yeah so I do want to share about the cover art because I I feel like the cover can really make or break it and I feel like the cover art is what has actually drawn so many women into the book whereas if I didn't have that art then who knows how many women would have read it just based on a simple cover so I commissioned that artwork from a woman named Chelsea I'll link her in the show notes if you were interested and commissioning her for one of your projects. Um, She was such a joy to work with. So I share in the introduction of my book how I see the female pelvis and how I have begun to connect the, the butterfly and just, you know, the physical body as well as the archetypal journey of the butterfly um, and how that weaves in together with the female pelvis. And so I had this vision of, you know, this pelvis and this butterfly merging as one with, um, these roots down into the earth. And if you look at the cover art, um, you can see that you can see this butterfly embedded into the female pelvis. You see her roots down into the earth and you can even see like the little shape of a yoni there too if you look at it. And then um, up above, there's like the cosmos and the phases of the moon. And I really just see that the female pelvis, the cervix is this portal between heaven and earth, literally um, in an energetic and metaphysical sense. And I just love how that art came together and how she took my vision and made it something so, so beautiful. So that's kind of the backstory with that art and that, you know, I would have loved to draw that, but I just didn't have the skills. So sometimes you just gotta, gotta get an expert. So, okay. So I want to read a chapter from my book And I was really debating about which chapter to read, but I decided to just go ahead and read chapter three, and it's called A History of Pelvic Awakening, because I love sharing this aspect of how I came to women's work, basically. Um, Taoist practices were really my introduction to feminism and um, my interest in women's work in the female body in womb and pelvic health so I'm going to just go ahead and read this chapter and um, oh and if you want to read the introduction to the book I believe if you go on the Amazon page and you click on the Kindle format, you can pretty much read most of the introduction, which is why um, I'm not reading that in this 
um, in this episode. So, all right, I'm going to go ahead and read chapter three, A History of Pelvic Awakening. Woman is by nature a shaman. Chukchi proverb. When I was 20, my partner introduced me to the idea that sex could be more than just a physical act. He had worked with sexual energy cultivation practices from the Taoist tradition for a few years, which he felt helped balance and build his energy in a positive way. This set me down a path of interest in the merging of sex and spirituality and learning about how our sexuality and life force energy is one and the same. Ultimately, I began to devour anything I could find on the roots of esoteric energy cultivation practices specific to women. I studied the history of yoga and its female shamanic roots, learned about ancient mystery schools, and what writings survived about the sexual alchemy practices of women in many parts of the world. It was not easy to find this information. Much of it is hidden and obscure. Likely most of it has been passed down from woman to woman and never written down. I include this chapter because when we talk about practices having to do with the deep and powerful energy sitting in our pelvic bowl, there is a rich history of women who have spent their whole lives as initiates in this mystery. Many of these women had given up a traditional, normal life to learn at the seat of creation, often hidden away from others in the mountains, the woods, or deserts. And others were mothers and wives and learned these practices secretly and separately from their family and friends. Much of our history as women was never written down, and I find it an honor to uncover and excavate to learn more about the lives of these women In doing so, we honor their strength and legacy. Whatever you choose to believe about these energies and practices, this is a story we carry within us and especially within our pelvis. There is a vast history involving the energies we find there that has been recognized in every culture's esoteric traditions. Through learning about these old stories, we come closer to understanding what potential lives within us. Through hearing the stories of women past, strong and dedicated women beholden to the great mystery, we begin to feel connected to our female ancestors and the cosmic web that unites all of us. Yoginis and Sky Dancers The yogic tradition predates written history. There is no consensus on exactly when it began. Some information has recently come into light, shared by feminist scholars, that women may have been among the first to practice yoga thousands of years before previously thought. I want to make the distinction between yoga as a traditional spiritual practice and the physical practice that you see in studios everywhere today. This modern physical practice originated around 150 years ago, influenced by Scandinavian, British and Indian gymnastics, bodybuilding culture, as well as circus performance techniques, as detailed in the book Yoga Body, The Origins of Modern Posture Practice by Mark Singleton. The history of yoga as a spiritual tradition is more ancient and is generally divided into four periods by modern and mostly male scholars. The Vedic period is marked by the Vedas, the oldest known yogic teachings. 
they are a collection of hymns that are odes to a divine power and form the basis of modern-day Hinduism. They include the teachings of breathwork and intense inner reflection. The creation of the Upanishads marks the pre-classical period and are scriptures that describe the nature of reality and the cycles of birth and death, among many other spiritual concepts. Also marking this period is the Bhagavad Gita, an epic tale of spiritual and worldly wisdom, circa 500 BCE. Next, the Yoga Sutras during the classical period were written by the scholar Patanjali around 2nd century BCE. Patanjali's sutras and his eight-limbed system, also known as Ashtanga, form the foundation for much of modern yoga. These eight steps detail a certain lifestyle as a path to enlightenment and transcendence, only one of which are the physical postures or asana. The only evidence of a physical posture that resembles what we see today in yoga studios is the lotus pose, or one sitting in meditation with their legs crossed. The post-classical period is an era that takes a markedly different turn with its focus shifting from liberation from the body and spiritual transcendence to living more in the present and valuing embodiment. Yoga masters started to give more importance to physical practices, pushing their body to its limits to discover what was possible. Teachings were about living in and welcoming the present reality. Yoga was introduced to the West in the 1800s when there was a growing interest in the United States and Europe in Eastern philosophy. Even though the gurus who came from India to the West were male, women were not excluded from these teachings, and there are some notable examples. In 1870, Queen Victoria had several lessons from Shiva Puri Babi. Another woman, Helen Blavatsky, left her husband in 1840 and traveled the world for 30 years exploring alternative religions and found yogic practices for herself. Later, Blavatsky founded the Theosophical Society and wrote popular books on yoga and esoterica. In 1938, Blanche Devries opened the first female-owned yoga studio. There were many other women like them, and in the 1960s, there was another resurgent interest in yoga. Indian teachers came to the West to teach and bring forth their knowledge. There were influential gurus of the time, all male, uh, Swami Sivananda, Paramahansa, Mahansa Yogananda, who wrote the well-known autobiography of a yogi, Patabi Joy, and please forgive me if I am totally uh, messing up these names. Um, so he introduced the popular style of Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga and BKS Iyengar. Many wealthy women in the West hosted gurus and others gave up their normal lives for them. Numerous female yoga teachers came after this time up until the present day. Alternative to this well-accepted history, some modern female scholars have uncovered a more ancient history predating these four periods that includes and even centers women. There have been numerous findings throughout the Indus Valley where yoga is said to originate and nearby sites of ancient figurines of women in yogic postures these postures are not the asana of today, but rather dance-like movements as well as women in the lotus posture, clearly in deep meditation. Many date 
back long before the Vedic period and are found in many parts of the world, suggesting either a far reach of yogic principles or a common shamanic viewpoint innate to humanity. Archaeological findings in this region coincide with other information and artifacts of goddess-worshipping cultures of that time and probably long before. In Katalhoyuk, uh, another uh, another name I will probably mess up, um, the earliest intact goddess site in the world, circa 7000 BCE, there were numerous figurines found of women in meditation, yoga, and dance postures. They are virtually indistinguishable. They were considered exquisite by the finders and were carved out of alabaster and stone. James Millard, the original excavator, remarks that statues of a female deity far outnumber those of a male one, and in some places, only females are represented. Vicki Noble, feminist scholar, writes, if these images had been found in India or Tibet, they would automatically be taken as sacred or religious icons of a female deity. In the West, these implications are often dismissed or ignored, especially nowadays. Rianne Eisler, cultural historian, also speaks of this problematic issue of male scholar interpretation through the lens of patriarchal culture. Here again, we encounter the problems of interpretation we have been examining, for the failure of most scholars to consider women significant has served to obscure the importance not only of women, but also of sex and prehistoric customs and rights. Noble also talks about the female blood roots of yoga and shamanism and how ancient yogic practices focused on women cultivating their two bodies, one, the dense physical one, which appears solid, and another invisible one that functions like a snake moving and interpenetrating with the physical one. The serpent is an ancient animal totem for female shamanic trance states and is often depicted as a symbol of latent energy coiled at the base of the spine, where the root chakra is depicted. There are many traditions, yoga being the most well-known, that aim to work with these energies and their ascension through the chakras of the body. This is said to release powerful kundalini, literally defined as snake in Sanskrit energies. Other figurines of women in yoga, meditation, and dance postures have been found all over the old world, including the Aegean region, another main center of goddess sites. There is a wealth of information on the existence of ancient egalitarian earth and goddess-worshipping societies before the Aryans came to the Indo-European region. It has been speculated that these peaceful societies have been around for much longer than our recorded history. Miranda Shaw, historian of the female roots of Tantric Buddhism, has translated ancient texts under the guidance of Indian teachers. In it, she found descriptions of assemblies of women who came together at night and feasted independently of men. She described animal-headed statues of dancing women found in open-air stone temples. In those days, the word yogini, meaning female master practitioner of yoga, was interchangeable with shaman, and most were women who would use their bodies to accomplish magical feats. The tantric yoginis would play musical instruments, sing, dance, eat, 
give initiations and perform rituals all night. They taught and inspired one another, channeling divine inspiration through song. They would also do yoga, which was essentially uh, an ecstatic dance-like performance where they would enter into a trance state. In the Tibetan Buddhism tradition, the term Dakini is often used to describe these women, which is a Sanskrit term meaning sky dancer, or in a longer version, she who flies through the limitless limits of the realm of space. This refers to shamanic spirit flight and moving between worlds. Through their bodies and the inherent power within them, the ancient yoginis and Dakinis found a path to healing bliss and transcendence. Although yoga was greatly taken over, shifted and molded by men throughout the ages, women are reclaiming the practice in greater numbers today. If we can remember its roots, we can bring a resurgence of ancient knowing to modern yoga. Sacred sexuality and temple priestesses. In ancient cultures, and some still exist today, so-called mystery schools were found all over, yet they existed in secret. Although each differed in specific teachings, esoteric traditions of initiation guided men and women through their own personal awakening. The common thread shared by nearly all groups involved teaching that our bodies and spirits were separate though entwined. Through the body, incredible stores of sacred sexual energy lived and could be utilized for our spirit bodies, both in life and after death. Through a gradual process of awakening and recognizing our collective path as souls, individuals purified themselves and stepped into a new place on their journey. Our sexual energy is one of the greatest secrets to our power, and it has been known in this in these mystery schools as well as individually as knowledge was passed on from teacher to student in the time of old women who spent years devoid devoting themselves to these practices and the path of cultivating their sexual energy came to a point where they were ready to initiate others these women were often referred to as temple priestesses and their roles have typically been misunderstood and demonized especially by various churches who have vilified them as prostitutes. Fortunately, like much of English etymology, we can find the original seed within words. The word whore comes from the Greek whore, H-O-R, meaning beloved one. One of the Hebrew words for prostitute is kedesha, from the Semitic root kudesh, meaning holy, consecrated, or set apart. One of the interpretations for the ancient Greek term for prostitute, hierodulus, meaning temple servant, uh, means temple servant, which can be interpreted to mean servant of the goddess who these temples were dedicated to. The sacred marriage, or heros gamos, was a holy sexual rite between a man and a woman seen all over the ancient world from the Near East to Europe and Asia, as well as Mesoamerica and South America, through their union, each partner encountered the divine and embodied the god and goddess symbolically. In more modern times, after the shift to a patriarchal leadership, these rituals have been co-opted to look more like prostitution and even sexual slavery. Devoid of equality, 
honoring and intention to access their divinity. The practice today, if it even exists at all, looks very different than what it once might have been. In ancient egalitarian cultures, the sacred marriage and other similar rites occurred in shrines and temples devoted to their mother goddess, as well as in sacred places in nature. Through an ecstatic encounter between a man and woman who have cultivated and honed their sexual energies, in those moments they are playing the role of god and goddess. Through sexuality, they awaken their own divinity and cosmic connection and build powerful healing energies in their bodies, as well as blessing the space they are in. Of course, it is outside the scope of this book, arguably any book, to share the how-to and specific practices that some of our ancestors took part in, but in hearing these stories, do you feel this legacy of potential? We can glimpse this potential when we are falling in love and feel the intense energy flowing through us after a deeply fulfilling sexual experience or even after experiencing or witnessing a powerful birth. We all have the sleeping serpent within us waiting to be set free. Much of this knowledge does not come from a book or ancient text, but rather from my lived experience. When I was a young teenager, a female teacher found me and initiated me into deeper mysteries beyond this earth, beyond this life, and beyond the veil. Through meditations, dreams, and incredible experiences difficult to put to words, I remembered truths that were cleansed from my knowing before this life. I remembered that this is but one life, and I have lived many times before, each one a dedication to my spiritual path that traveled with the same group of souls on the same path. After a couple of years, I wanted to part ways with this teacher as I desired to seek knowledge in my own way. I did not believe in the old hierarchies of the past, of walls to knowledge where only teachers held the key. While I respect and honor the traditions of student-teacher relationships that have passed down mysteries and initiations throughout time, I feel that integrity and leadership is few and far between. I wholeheartedly believe that source lives within me and I have been critical of and holding high standards for leadership ever since. Taoist Women. Due to its strong lineage, there still survives texts and lore about the women of ancient China and their energy cultivation practices. The Chinese have much to offer us with their intact wisdom from knowledge of energy centers in the body to herbalism and medicine and stories of their female masters. The practice of Nidan or women's inner alchemy involved female specific breathing practices and meditation to cultivate one's sexual energies and guide them towards physical vitality, radiance, and spiritual transcendence. Many writings of women masters and their lives date back to the second century. Writings on the practices of inner alchemy for women involved transforming the three treasures, Jing, original essence, Qi, energy, or life force, and Shen, spirit. This is done through the symbolism of Shang Tai, or creating an immortal embryo or spiritual pregnancy. In the course of 10 moons, the practitioner grows a body of light within themselves. Another advanced practice was stopping the flow of menstrual blood. Menstrual blood, sometimes referred to as celestial water, is seen as a fundamental energy for women and a vital substance. 
Through its retention, women could transform their energies. However, the practice of menstrual retention is not recommended for the average woman. Writings abound advising male and female seekers who wish to cultivate their sexual energies. The famous 18th century Zen teacher Hakuin advised women to keep their attention on the area between their breasts when in meditation while having men focus on their lower abdomen. Thomas Cleary in Immortal Sisters, Secret Teachings of Taoist Women, says of this practice that women may start to feel there is an energy in the opening between the breasts that thrusts out, divides, and goes into the breasts right through to the nipples. This is what alchemical classics call the living midnight when the medicine is produced. Cleary notes that at this point, the hundred energy channels in the body are said to be in harmony. It is interesting to note that many texts advise men to focus on their lower abdominal area during meditation, and there is ample evidence in this culture to show that women are advised to focus on their breasts. In many ways, Taoist practices focus on balancing opposites and achieving harmony through this. Through the focus on their lower abdomen and harnessing this internal energy, men come to the deepest yin within their yang nature. When women focus on their heart and breasts and work on expanding their energy, they come to the deepest yang within their yin nature. Taoism offered women in ancient China a path to independence through the roles of mediums, nuns, priestesses, or women who were aiming to attain spiritual immortality. Taoism has traditionally recognized women as serving major roles, that of the life giver and nurturing mother, as representatives of the cosmic yin of the universe, divine teachers, channels to the other world, and possessors of healing and shamanic powers. It has also recognized the female body as the site of crucial processes of spiritual transformation known as inner alchemy. The Taoist tradition is rich in alchemical practices that are said to help attain spiritual transcendence and physical vitality. Women were considered to have a major, if not crucial, role even amidst patriarchal society in the background. Ultimately, this chapter offers a glimpse to some of the great mysteries of our past and the possibilities it offers when we uncover them. You can read more in depth about other cultures and their more ancient roots in the book, The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler. Okay, so that was chapter three. I hope you enjoyed that. That was a really fun chapter to write. I This is the kind of information that I have been so fascinated by my entire life and, um, well, ever since I was an adult and learned about it, but I studied this in college in depth. I went to a liberal arts college where I could kind of create my own course of study and you know, choose every aspect of it. So in my last year, I really dived deep into um, so many of these ancient texts and became just so fascinated. And you truly can find these esoteric energy, uh, sexual energy cultivation practices really all throughout the world in so many different cultures. So I will put in the show notes um, 
a few different books if you're interested in learning more in depth about these practices. I'm just going to list a bunch and you can learn more about it if it interests you like it does for me. So yeah, I I love my book and I hope that this this chapter and kind of sharing about my process makes you a desire to read it or gives you some inspiration if you have an idea of your own. Um, I just want to kind of end with sharing some reviews from the book and I want to share my um, the official summary that I have as well so you can understand kind of what it's about. So Uh, My book is called Pelvic Awakening, Connecting to Your Female Center um, for Transformation, Healing, and Joy. And Pelvic Awakening shares how to embody your integrity and power as a woman through connection to your pelvic space. Throughout the book, there are numerous tools and practices on pelvic wellness and healing from a physical, emotional, spiritual, and energetic perspective. You will learn about female, pelvic, physical, and energetic anatomy, esoteric and ancient energy cultivation traditions, the physical, spiritual, and energetic transformations during motherhood, pelvic floor exercises and massage for healing and connecting to yourself, working with trauma and emotions in your pelvic space, ancient women's wisdom and practices, integration of everything into your modern life, and more. So you can see wow, just how much I've attempted to cover in this book. So I really do cover all of this and it's not a super deep dive, but maybe in the future I will write a second book that goes deeper into one of these. So I'm going to just share a couple of reviews that I love and um, yeah, okay. So this is from (laughs) a woman who is a dear friend, and her name is a person from Earth. She says, this is such an excellent book. The author is knowledgeable, intuitive, and abundantly giving wisdom. As someone who has suffered from endometriosis and uterine fibroids, this book has a wealth of knowledge to help with these issues. I have been recommending this book to all of the women I know of all ages. This is a great book to introduce young women to a path of embracing the gifts of femininity. It is also a great book for elder women to rekindle their feminine energies. Thank you for writing this amazing book. Um, It's another one I love from Kayla. Bethany's book, Pelvic Awakening, is one of the finest resources I've come across in my 40 years as a reproductive health educator. Her writing is so smooth and personal, comprehensive and clear. The contents have such value that I wish every teen woman and man has a chance to learn from this excellent work, including reproductive scientific knowledge with ancient techniques and ceremony tools and suggestions for healing on so many levels and offering guidance to support the depths of our most sacred and vital bodies is truly a gift. Highly recommend. Um, let's see, what is another one or two that I want to share? Um, 
Here's one. Bethany is an extraordinary writer relating to the natural world uh, with the womb and all women. This is a great book to get to know, practice, and love deeply into your womanly body. It has helped me tremendously with my prolapse healing and spiritual practices within my own body. Um, And I'll just share one more from Caitlin. Pelvic awakening is a gift to all women. This book is amazing at tying together simple practical measures along with the deeper spiritual components of womanhood and healing. The book takes you on a journey, each step preparing you for the next to arrive at a place of wholeness and integration at the end. As a holistic women's health practitioner, this book is one of few that I recommend to all my clients. Oh, my heart feels so full. So thank you for listening. Um, I hope that this has been a fun and fascinating episode for you. I am also planning to share other book, um, other books that I just love and adore on future episodes in a kind of book review format. So I'm excited to maybe bring one of those to you next week, one of my most beloved books recently. So stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, all the links of everything I mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes. And thank you again for being here with me. Have you been looking to deepen your knowledge and specialize in women's pelvic wellness, but haven't found anything resonant? Have you gone through your own pelvic healing journey or had a powerful birth experience and now feel the call to work with women, but don't really know where to start? Or maybe you're a holistic practitioner already, but your training only covered one or two classes on women's health and you want more. Do you have an intuitive knowing and a deep sense that this is the center of a woman's power and that supporting her in her pelvic wellness might just change everything? If this is you, I want to invite you into the container of my practitioner training, which I also see as a kind of initiatory journey. This training covers so much and was created out of my pure devotion to this vision of women healing and coming back to the source of their power on this planet and how we can support and hold space for them along that path. Women need the wise woman to be a guide for them in their healing and to trust them in their sovereignty. So if you're wanting to build a heart-led, thriving women's wellness business that can look truly so many different ways and want to be really resourced in holistic women's wellness and pelvic care, check out my training program at bethanywild.com. And what I make with this training helps support this podcast so that I can keep going and sharing all of this wisdom. So Thank you so much and consider sharing this training or even this podcast with a friend if you feel like they might deeply resonate with it. And of course, I have to ask for reviews since kind of, you know, that's how this algorithm tends to work. So if you enjoyed this podcast episode, please consider leaving a quick review and a rating and sharing with a friend. So thank you so much.